Since 2015, Pop Health Podcast has brought to you some of the best minds in healthcare, including leaders from government, not-for-profit, and investor-backed powerhouses, as they share successes, failures, and how our audience can move forward in today's constantly evolving healthcare world. Thank you for joining us for today's episode presented by 24-Hour Home Care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Pop of Podcast. Today's edition is about the Health 2021 Boston, Massachusetts conference, where I had the opportunity to interview leaders at this conference that included over 7,000 people. This conference included CEOs of the vaccines for COVID from both Moderna and Pfizer, and other leaders like government, other entrepreneurs, health systems, just a variety of folks from all over the world. In, in the episode, you'll hear either part one or part two from entrepreneurs, some of the leaders of the biggest organizations in the world, and much more. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Other episodes of Pop of Podcasts can be found on our website, popofpodcast.com, our YouTube channel, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the show. Well, folks, we have Paul Murray from Google here at the health conference here in Boston. How's it going, Paul? Great. Thanks for having me, Gavin. Appreciate yeah, it. absolutely. So um, I've been fortunate to have uh, one of your colleagues on before, uh, actually two, uh, the former VP of Google Health, uh, David Feinberg, yes. who uh, you may know and now over at Cerner. And uh, I had the opportunity to interact with Dr. Karen a little bit over email recently. She seems great. Um, and so let's get to know you a little bit. So. Before we jump in, Paul, tell us something about yourself, something that would surprise us, something outside of the workplace or technology place. Um, so uh, one thing I really enjoy is the Studio Ghibli movies, all the uh, animation and music from those anime movies from Japan. My kids were like super into it and they kind of pulled me into it and I love just the, the way they portray things that are almost more real than real life. And the music's just beautiful and the stories of like Totoro and Howl's Moving Castle and just really enjoy those movies. So it's fun sharing those with my kids. Awesome, awesome. I know that's uh, kind of a newer thing among kids. Uh, when I grew up, I remember seeing a book called Dragon Ball. I'm not sure if you've heard that one. That was a big like Japanese anime in the, in the 80s. Um, so very cool. So you have kids, uh, how many kids do you have? Three kids, Okay. two in college and one high schooler. Are they gonna listen to this? I'm definitely gonna send it to them. <laughs> awesome, cool, and which <laughs> colleges are they going to? Uh, my two oldest girls both go to University of Washington. Okay, awesome, yeah. Huskies. Yeah, right, little pack, Huskies. Little Pac-12 there, awesome. Yeah. So while we know you are a technology guy, uh, let's, let's get to know you in your earlier days. Tell us where you grew up and eventually how you shifted into technology. Right, so I grew up in Orange County in California and went to school down at UC San Diego. Uh, double, double E engineering degree uh, down there. And after school, I did a couple of startups. And so I got into the business side as well as the technology side. And one of those startups uh, luckily was acquired by Google in 2005, a company called Urchin Software. Okay, and what, were, what was Urchin Software doing? So Urchin was a web analytics company. Urchin became Google Analytics. Ah. Uh, and so I, over the, over the last 10 plus years, I've had an amazing opportunity at Google to build many uh, marketing and advertising and measurement tools, ranging from you know experimentation tools, attribution modeling, all kinds of automation systems, really digging into how do you put data to work um, for you know many, many businesses in all, all across the world. It's been a fabulous ride. Awesome, that's a cool journey, how you were one of the, probably the many acquisitions Google has had, but you've stayed on board and you've been 
part of Urchin and, and Google for how many years altogether? 16 and a half years, yeah. Okay, awesome, good for you. That's, that's not so common in today's world, right? Where someone's with the same organization for so long. Um, really quickly, why have you stuck it out for that long? What's kept you there? So, I've, first of all, I've had incredible opportunities to build amazing products and reach just, you know, millions, billions of people around the world with those products. And so now as I have, a couple years ago, I've switched into the health space for me to be able to take advantage of my background and organizing data and making that really accessible and useful and bring that into the healthcare industry, which is, you know, in such strong need of, you know, great tools. Uh, doing that at Google is just uh, something I wouldn't pass up. I'm super excited about it. Awesome. So uh, most folks know that Google's headquartered up in Northern California. Is that where you're residing nowadays? Yes, that's where I live, yeah. Where are your sports loyalties since you're from Orange County? So I grew up a Dodgers fan, so I still have my, uh, my blue cap, and I was very sad about last night's game with the Braves. Well, I agree. Another walk-off. However... Recently, I know your colleagues in Northern California are more likely Giants fans. More likely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're, they're not so happy with, uh, with called strikes and those kind of things. So. Check swings. Check swings. All, all yeah. that good stuff. Cool. Well, let's jump in uh, really quickly for our audience, which are mostly healthcare professionals. So a lot of our audience are not necessarily the folks doing like the data analysis, but they're the actual providers who can benefit from it, right? So before we jump into Care Studio, which is why we're here today, Briefly share with us what is Google Health? Yeah, so Google Health, as Dr. Karen talked about yesterday in the main session, is a company-wide effort to really bring Google technologies and platforms to bear in the health space and to, to really impact billions of people around the world and help them be healthier. And that means products in the consumer side, so you can think of search and maps and YouTube and making sure we have the right information and help people on those journeys. Uh, of course, Fitbit and our ability to provide more personalized experiences for folks looking to improve their health and wellness. And then on the enterprise side, so our cloud platform and Care Studio, which we'll talk about in a second. There's also efforts on the research side, you know, to bring machine learning and AI capabilities to really improve the state of the art in what can be done in terms of imaging, diagnostics, and really bringing those tools to health. So it's a broad set of efforts that are really bringing uh, together all the best parts of Google, really, and the, the mission here is to help everyone be healthier. Awesome, and so last night, you mentioned Dr. Karen, who's the uh, vice president of Google Health. Am I getting that right, or may I have it? She's the chief, chief health officer of the company, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I had, yeah. That, I had that off a little bit. And uh, one thing she touched on is they purposely didn't use the term medical officer, right? Because health encompasses more than just medical, I guess, which I thought was really cool. And we won't get into that uh, right now. So one, another thing she mentioned was you guys don't have a P&L or profit and loss statement. Keeping in mind that our audience is mostly healthcare professionals and not necessarily managing profit and loss statements, what does that mean to not have a P&L? Well, what it means is uh, we're, we're, our effort is still early and we're really focused on impact. So impact, um, and this really goes pretty deeply to Google's overall mission and being helpful to everyone in the world. Like we, we want to make sure that we're really driving impact, we're being truly helpful in moments of need for individuals, for care providers, et cetera, um, before we think about the business side of it. We want to make sure the impact is there. So is it fair for me to say that uh, profitability and making money is not extremely 
important at this moment for Google Health. Correct. That's right. Thank you. Awesome. So let's jump into Care Studio. In layman's terms, what is Care Studio? So Care Studio is a software system that helps health organizations realize the potential of a full longitudinal patient record by helping do really two key things. First, organize you know, fragmented uh, EHR and other data sources across systems into a single patient record by doing all the harmonization and normalization work. And then second, provide a layer on top to make that information truly accessible and useful through some really great search and summarization abilities. So, if, for example, if you're a hospitalist and you're admitting a new patient, uh, let's say who has chest pain, and you're, you want to quickly understand what's going on with this patient in their past, and maybe you want to do look up to see, like, hey, have they had a stress test before, or have they been to the cardiologist? What was the last note? That might be in a specialty EHR system that might not be very easily accessible and might be a PDF attachment somewhere or something like that. So for us, for the doctor to be able to go in and simply type in the search component of Care Studio and say stress test or cardiology or something like that, we'll use our search capabilities in that system to automatically surface all the relevant information, including, you know, let's say a stress test from two years ago. And that just makes it super easy to find the information that clinicians are looking for in that moment of need. And that's what we're really working on. I'm super excited about it. Okay, cool. So there's there's other like search tools out there, but they're usually like singular for a, a certain like EHR. So is the vision that Care Studio can be, you know, working with every single EHR, or how is that going to work? Like how is it? right? So so two parts to that. I think first um, pulling together the data across EHRs into a single patient record is really a key part of the system. But there's lots of um, unstructured data inside this inside those systems. So you think okay, about okay. you think about like the notes, you know, progress notes and labs, PDFs, faxes that have come in. There's lots of unstructured data, and it can take you know hours, frankly, for a clinician to dig through all that and truly understand what's going on with the patient. They just don't have the time to do that. Right. So um, obviously, at Google, we're good at search capability, you know, search technology. So we have a specially tuned uh, system that's a medically tuned knowledge graph system that really helps bring to life all that data. And so to give an example, like you could type in something like, you know, diabetes and we'll automatically pull up all the things that are related to that. So notes that talk about, uh, you know, or hyperglycemia or, you know, anything related to sugars. We'll pull up the labs and vitals for your sugar levels, your HbA1c, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It'll find all the elements that are related to that and surface in a way that's super accessible. And okay. that just makes it really easy. Awesome, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so is Care Studio like active today? Are you able to share who you're testing with or where it's active today? Yeah, we're, we're in live uh, pilot usage right now with Ascension, which is the largest nonprofit system in, in the US. Uh, in a couple of their locations. Okay. Um, um, and the feedback is incredible so far, really seeing some really great early usage and that feedback's important. And we're also ramping up with Beth Israel Deaconess Center uh, and really excited to get to a pilot uh, early in 2022 with them. So we're in the process of onboarding them right now. Okay, awesome. So with like Ascension or you know future pilot partners as well, what's like the timeline? Do you guys have goals like, hey, we want Care Studio to be here in, in two years or nationally utilizing all 50 states by X time? 
So, you know, it's going to take multiple steps. We, we want to make sure we get each part of this right because, you know, organizing information and putting that in front of clinicians is super critical. And so there are a number of steps we want to take to make sure we do it right. But uh, every partner and every step we take forward, we're also working to make the process easier to onboard and easier to move forward. So yeah, we're excited in the next couple of years to really be expanding the number of partners and, uh, uh, and really move forward with that. Okay, awesome. And then here at Health, uh, for yourself, what are you hoping to achieve? Are you an attendee? Are you uh, spreading the word? Meeting lots of folks. You know, these conferences, first of all, it's great to be in person at a, at a show here, so enjoying that. It's also, you know, important for us to realize, like, you know, we need partners and industry really to, uh, to be with us as we move forward. And so it's important for me to be meeting you know, policymakers, regulators, industry uh, leaders across the board to ensure that we're learning as we go and we're doing it really in partnership with everyone here. You know, the, the real mission here is to improve health outcomes and we're not gonna do it alone. We need to, you know, we need, need to be a part of the, the effort here. So it's great to be here at the HLTH conference. I agree 100%. I know some folks, is this, may I ask, is this your first in-person in a while or have you done other in-persons uh, recently? Uh, I think since Las Vegas uh, Health Conference. Yeah, so it's been a couple of years. A yeah. couple of years, awesome. Yeah. So our audience are mostly healthcare professionals, plan administrators, folks who might be interested in utilizing this themselves. Um, are you open to more pilot customers at this time? Yes, we are having a number of conversations with uh, potentially more partners, and so we're excited about that. We are still early in our journey, but uh, you know we're definitely excited to have more conversations. Okay, and how can folks uh, get connected with you guys to, to have that conversation? So the best way would be to uh, contact us through LinkedIn on our Google Health uh, um, user there on LinkedIn. Okay, awesome, sounds good. Well folks, Paul Murray, Vice President and General Manager of Care Studio has been our guest, also a Dodger fan, so I appreciate that and I'll remember that. Uh, thanks so much for joining the show today. Gavin, thanks so much, really enjoyed it. All right, folks, well, we're here at the Health 2021 Boston Conference, and I'm here with Darius Cherzad, who is the Chief Commercial Officer with Patient, and that's spelled P-A-Y-T-I-E-N-T. Um, and so, Darius, we'd like to kick off each episode or, or mini episode getting to know the guest a little bit. So uh, share with us a fun fact, something outside of maybe the uh, typical workplace. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I so I, I thought about this a little bit before the discussion, and uh, the... <laughs> I think probably the the best version of this, which may be difficult to believe because you can see me and I'm not exceptionally tall, but uh, when I was younger, one time to the great embarrassment of my friends and uh, a little bit more to my own great embarrassment, I entered a slam dunk contest uh, at a basketball tournament and uh, I'll, I'll sort of, I won't I'll spare the, the listeners the, the detailed version of the story, but uh, suffice it to say that it sort of finished with me on my back in front of a crowd of like three or four hundred people. So, uh, yeah, I'm a, a terrible basketball player. That's the moral <laughs> of the story. Good to know. Uh, hopefully, no back injuries. No, <laughs> no, we did. We we made it out okay. The the resilience of youth, I think. I was gonna say same yeah. thing. The older I get, uh, I probably would have permanent injuries. <laughs> uh, so we're gonna talk a little bit about patient here in a second, but let's get to know you a little bit more. So share with us some background, where you grew up, uh, maybe if you speak any languages, that type of thing. Uh, originally Canadian, I, uh, I came to the U.S. for grad school, uh, and so I've been sort of living here largely since. Uh, most of that time in New York City, and and there I, I spent a long time working for a consulting firm kind of later in my career, mostly focused on healthcare and financial services. And so yeah, a lot of that experience has actually proved super valuable for the work we're doing at Patient, given where we sit in kind of the healthcare ecosystem. 
and then yeah, lucky enough, uh, lucky enough that uh, exposed to languages at a pretty early stage of my life, so uh, speak a few, and so Farsi and, and naturally English and, and Spanish and French. Uh, with some uh, that kind of developed over some time living abroad over the years. So just four languages, that's just, it. <laughs> just just four, exactly. Awesome. Well, hopefully, uh, you know, as patient grows, you can leverage that skill set, you know. <laughs> that, that would be the goal. That would be the goal. Awesome. So patient, give us a little bit of a background as to how patient came about and, and ultimately how you got connected to patient. Yeah, absolutely. So, so sort of the, like, I mean, I think first the way to think of it is just what, what we are and kind of what we do. And so I think the headline I would characterize it as is either an employer or health plan sponsored benefit for financing the out-of-pocket portion of members' healthcare costs. And so I'd put two sort of nuances on that for folks. I think one is uh, it's truly the broadest definition of out-of-pocket healthcare. And so medical is obviously right down the middle, but it also includes dental, vision, pharmaceutical, even veterinary care. And so we can expand or sort of contract that, uh, that kind of horizon of options at the discretion of our partners or our clients. And then two is, uh, you know, I use the word finance only because I don't have a better one, but it's free for members. And so that means there is no interest. There's never any fees. There's never any cost. And so our whole sort of mission or raison d'etre really to, to kind of go back to your initial question is that as the out-of-pocket responsibility in the space has grown, there's a couple of unintended consequences we've seen, right? One of those is that folks go get care and they don't end up paying providers. Yeah. And so that sort of contributes to this spiral of costs rising. Second piece is folks go get care, but then they end up taking interest-bearing debt in order to finance those expenses. And so that's the whole world of medical debt, medical bankruptcy, which kind of prior to COVID was already an issue. And I think now is only kind of becoming more front of mind, right? There was a, I think a piece on NPR most recently that said something like 30% of folks had kind of put off care because of costs during the pandemic. And I think the, the kind of most significant consequence, but potentially the most poorly understood one, is that whole idea of deferred or foregone care, and right? That's the social determinant of health angle, that's a health equity angle, that's a um, access to care angle. And so our really mission and, and the whole purpose of, of the company is to help address those three challenges in the, in the system we have today. Yeah, that, I mean, when, when we met, I guess via email, I didn't realize there's, there's so much depth to this out-of-pocket expense, right? And the, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I'm fortunate. My wife and I both work. My wife's a teacher in California, awesome benefits. But there's still these copays. And an example, I think, that our audience can relate to, and you may have heard this one, a family goes to the ED, an in-network hospital for emergency department care, but the physician group that's staffed in the emergency department is out of network. So an example for me that this is really, really relevant, we had a $1,500 copay for an in-network four-hour ED visit, but our copay was $1,500 because it was an out-of-network physician group. Now, we both work, and that's not going to change our life, but man, I was frustrated, and we had to pay this big copay, but if only one of us worked, that could have been maybe a burden, right? It's exactly right, and I think the, the sort of way we see the world, right, is a lot of the orientation of financing solutions in the space now have been sort of after the fact, right? Which is to say, you you sort of have a visit with a provider, there's a bill, 
you can't pay the bill. Now there's a set of kind of financing solutions available to you to, to solve those. And a lot of the provider side solutions that we've seen have, have been oriented in that direction. And our perspective on it is a little bit different, which is to say, rather than sort of dealing with the challenge after it arises, what if we go upstream? And what if we actually put credit in the hands of members before they walk in the door? Yeah. Right? And that idea there is, one, you truly do reduce the barriers, right? That obstacle of, I'm not going because I don't have cash. You do away with that if you kind of address the problem that way. And, and two is you sort of really restore dignity to the way that people get care, right? It's not someone having to come after the fact and in a, in a moment of sort of vulnerability or discomfort, try to reach out to a provider, negotiate a payment plan or kind of settle that bill down. You're, you're sort of giving them that ability up front. And then the thing that we do, which I think is distinctive, is we let people set the payment plan of their own choosing, right? Which is if you have that $1,500 bill, you could do 10 payments of $150. You could do any kind of number of kind of breaks on that that works for you. And so that, I think, is something kind of new and special about what we do versus a lot of the options that exist today. Okay. So you mentioned employer or health plan-sponsored um, service, I guess. And so is the the funding of your organization or the revenue that comes to you guys, it's from the employer or from the health plan, correct? That's correct, exactly. And so the, the model is typically one where whether it's the plan or the employer that sponsors it, there's a set of sort of benefits that obviously accrue to their members or their employees. And, and that is that is valuable. And those are all the pieces we kind of talked about, right, of the problems. But similarly, whether you're a provider, you're an employer, there's value that we create for you too, right? Whether it's in the form of cost savings, whether it's in the form of flexibility, yeah, whether it's in the form of just retaining and attracting employees, especially in a labor market as tight as the one we're oh, yeah. kind of living in today. And so we see that as sort of both kind of direct and almost ancillary savings and impact we can create for those partners uh, when we sort of work with them to, to really put this product in the hands of the members. Okay, got it. So like you mentioned earlier, you know, one of my questions was what's different about you guys? There's other mechanisms out there. So the other fund, if I go to the hospital, have that $1,500 copayment and can't pay it, historically I might get a, like a short-term interest loan, um, borrow from families. Um, may I ask, I know there's like this doctor's group that I work with. They might offer me an interest-free payment plan. Can you tell me if there's anything different about patient versus the doctor's group giving me an interest-free payment plan? Absolutely. So yeah. I, I think the way I would, the way I'd sort of characterize it is that in one package, we're putting together something that is kind of truly new and different from what else is out there. And I think the pieces that are important in that is, one, you set the payment terms, right? So it's not a provider or it's not a financial institution that's telling you, hey, this is your payment plan, these are your minimum payments. Okay. With our product, you choose. Two is there's never any interest or fees, which there's some sort of uh, there's some versions of that out there, but uh, but sort of not with this full package. Okay. Three is everyone's eligible, right? So whether the plan sponsors you or your employer sponsors you, we're able to put this in the hands of everyone that that body chooses to sponsor, and that means independent of your credit score, we can give you access ah. to this product, which I, I is <laughs> is truly a different thing. That is different. It, and then the, the last piece of it, which I, I think is special too, right? And that's kind of what enables to do it is in an employer model, we can actually give you multiple ways to pay this back most easily through your payroll system. Yeah. And that means you yourself would elect your payment plan. We'd, put, we'd push those in as kind of post-tax deductions from payroll. Yep. It makes it clean. It makes it easy. And on the employer administration side, it's it's effectively effortless. Okay. Um, so it's a it's a 
kind of a neat package that combines all those things and, and honestly it was what sort of drew me drew me to this product in the first place okay cool so we we're talking off the air you know uh, here at the health conference there's a lot of startups um, you mentioned uh, you know 40 employees I don't think 40 is a small number so I mean you guys must have some headway already can you maybe talk to me really briefly about some early wins and kind of where you guys are today yeah so I, I think we've been very fortunate I, I, I it's really the right way to think of it right in the sense of Early on, we found a number of employers uh, starting sort of near our home base in, uh, in mid-Missouri, but expanding out relatively quickly across the country, uh, who, who believe in this, right? And they believe that either this is good for their folks and it's a, it's a very cost-effective way they can support them, or honestly, for some of our employer, uh, employer clients, it's, it's helping them out of a pain point, which is they want to provide care to their employees, cost of care keeps going up. That typically is experienced in the form of rate increases, and this kind of helps really folks meet in the middle, right? So if employers need to make some changes to their plan design, well, this can be a way you can make that more, I think, generous and really make those changes more sensitively for your employees. And then the second piece of it, which uh, we're particularly excited about, is is partnerships with payers. And so we've been lucky to sort of find a, a number of like-minded folks uh, both at sort of some of the smaller kind of upstart payers, but also some of the national ones that understand sort of the the situation their folks are in. And I think crucially, they appreciate that privileged position that the payer occupies, right? Yeah. Which is to say, they're at the middle of the provider, of the member, of the employer. And from that position, I think they they see sort of the pain points in a way that's unique, but also cohesive. Yeah, and I think some of those folks have been really forward thinking and, and being willing to kind of lean in with us to help put this in the hands of their members. Okay, yeah. so so are you able to share any of your partners? Yeah, so I, I think probably the largest one uh, and the partnership we're most proud of is with Centene and with their Ambetter product in uh, in the state of Indiana and in the state of Mississippi. Uh, we sort of got this in the hands of the members there, and it's it's been a successful program so far, and so keen to see where it goes. Nice. I know Centene's huge, right? And they have different like names throughout the country. Uh, I remember uh, I had a, a woman named Karen Johnson who helps lead uh, Centene and HealthNet in California, and she helped me understand like these debit card mechanisms that can help pay for co-pays. And it seems like there's a like Centene gets basically get what you're doing, and they agree clearly. So. If I'm a provider, I'm this doctor's group, and, and Gavin Ward's family owes me $1,500. If Gavin Ward's family is going to take a year to pay their from payroll deductions, do I get that $1,500 up front, or do I have to wait for the year to get all my money? So the headline is, you as the provider get paid in full up front. Okay. And so I think that that's part of what we do that is special, is for the provider, we're effectively saying, hey... The financial risk that up to now in most of these sort of structures and most of these competing solutions you have borne, yeah. that's actually off of you completely. And so it's us that sort of holds that exposure. Okay. Yeah. And, and we sort of take that spread between the time when the transaction is made, the provider gets paid, and then we collect it back. Wow. So you're taking on... We are, we are taking on the credit risk, exactly, in, in that exchange. Um, in that exchange, and, and in earnest, I think it's the... 
it, it's sort of the the ability to do that uh, in conjunction with like-minded payers and and kind of employers that has made it a, a, a super successful bet so far. So yeah, we're we're keen to see where this keeps going. Awesome. So you're here at Health. You guys have a table at Exhibit Booth. I'm assuming we uh, not an Exhibit Booth actually, okay. but one of these uh one of the sort of smaller meeting pods for uh for uh I guess I would say yeah smaller kind of one-on-one sessions and meetings like that. Okay. Awesome. So if folks want to learn more about patient Darius, what's the best way to do so? Website. Yeah. The right place to find us is you know is on our website www.patient.com and and reach out. We'd be happy to hear from folks. All right. And again, that's P A Y T I E N T dot com. And then, Darius, are you active on social media or, or LinkedIn or anything like that? If people kind of want to keep tabs on you and how you're helping grow the company as the chief commercial officer? I, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I kind of welcome welcome folks to reach out on LinkedIn. And uh, and yeah, I mean, my name is Darius Cherzad and we'd be happy to hear from you. All right. I'm going to spell it for you, uh, folks. C-H-E-H-R-Z-A-D. Darius Cherzad. And I'm sure I didn't pronounce it right. He was being kind and saying... How about you pronounce it, Darius? Real no, quick. I mean, Gavin, you, you nailed it. Uh, Darius shows out. It's perfect. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, Darius, thanks for coming by today and really appreciate it. And best wishes to the patient. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. Chris, thanks so much for joining the show today. Thanks, Gavin. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Uh, so I had the opportunity to uh, hear Chris at a panel yesterday. And fortunately, we've been able to find some time to connect and have you on the show. So Chris, one thing about our podcast is we like to get to know the guests a little bit before we jump into healthcare or business. So share with us something about you outside of the Sutter world, maybe something on the personal side, a fun fact. Sure, sure. Fun fact. Um, well, during COVID, one, I've been a bicyclist for a long time and have helped with Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to train people for their first triathlon. And one thing I saw, there were these um, sprinter vans that had been built up. When COVID happened, we realized uh, our staff needed to quarantine. So we teamed up with Outdoorsy and said, we could bring one of these camper vans to your driveway and you can quarantine at home, which uh, was an interesting idea, just kind of combining two industries. So my side project during COVID was to build one out and it became my office. We live in a small house, so I work in and out of the van. And now it turns out we have fires in California, unfortunately. And my dream is to take it to all of our facilities and talk to patients, talk to our staff and learn a lot about some of our more remote locations and ideally give it to someone that might need it if they're fleeing a fire or whatever they might need. So that's been a really fun side project during, during COVID. Wow, that is, that's really neat. My uh, uncle, um, related to that, had an organization called Sheds for Hope. Um, and basically, or forget, I'm mixing, I'm getting the title wrong, but basically during disasters, instead of mobile, yours is mobile, yes. but he would help build sheds yes. during times of disaster. Yes, I've seen, I've seen things like this. Oh, yeah, yeah that's cool. great. Nice. Right. So, so you did that during COVID. Now, I know you're not necessarily from California. I think you have a Colorado background, correct? Correct, yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and, uh, and spent some time in Durango, Colorado. And my first job here in California was, well, not here. We're here in Boston, but in California, <laughs> um, was a specialized bicycles. So from a pop health perspective, I've been telling people I've been in healthcare the whole time. It just is not in industries defined as such. You know, our job was to get people on their bicycles, as many people as possible. And at one degree, that was a Tour de France. And on the other hand, it was, you know, the electric bike now and what that means for people. And, and uh, women at that time, we were really excited about women coming into cycling, and that's clearly erupted. And, um, you know, from there, went to IDEO, which is a design firm, okay. and then went to One Medical, and now 
uh, large healthcare and at Center Health. Okay, awesome. So when you say specialized, is that the, the brand name? Correct. Because okay. Yes. So my you mentioned women bicycles specialized. My daughter's bike okay. is just, we got it a hand me down from a friend. It's specialized, and they told me this is a quality bike. <laughs> they and, were right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm cheap by nature, so I would never. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, I can just feel it. Like just like there's something higher quality about specialized. So so you have a design background, mm-hmm. and our audience who many of them are uh, clinicians or front li- from frontline to leadership. And design may not be something, you know, a, a guy, cyclist, design. Right. How does that skill set ultimately get to Sutter? Can you walk us through how sure. you made that journey? Sure. I think just defining design, it's really the all the senses and an experience that one goes through. So a lot of times people think about design as, how it looks or the form or the function. If I dropped something, it would make a sound and I, someone designed it. But we think of design as experience architecture. That's a great way to describe it. Okay. And if you look at any given healthcare journey, there are so many steps that we don't think about. Now, the first question is, can we eliminate a number of those steps? And the answer is yes. Uh, but the second part for clinicians and those that might be listening is, there's a whole ecosystem around you. Sometimes it's working with you, sometimes it's working against you. But really what we're doing is looking at experience architecture, whether that's the maternity experience or the primary care experience or from a population health experience. What, how would we design a community um, from scratch? You know? So design thinking is really what we're talking about. And design thinking is, healthcare has been late to embrace design thinking. You know, even the financial world beat healthcare to yeah. really start thinking about behavioral economics and design. But this is design's moment in healthcare, and you're seeing it at this conference. This is all about low friction user experiences. How do you make it more accessible, more relatable, more engaging? And that's design's role in healthcare. And and when we entered, you know, it was it was the early days of that. But now that we've been in it for a number of years, design's really making its mark on healthcare now, and really just thinking about workflows and experiences on on both the provider side as well as the patient side. So this is. This is the era. So you think of big brands that do this really well, like Airbnb, yep. you know, great design-led company. That thinking applied to healthcare will take us very, very far and will help us reimagine what's the ultimate experience that we want people and their families to go through. Yeah, good point. And I remember in yesterday's panel, um, you referenced uh, some of the patients that y'all are serving in the home. So Chris was in a uh, panel that kind of had the term homing in the mm-hmm. title. Mm-hmm. So. You know, service in the home, I guess you can say. And one thing you mentioned that was so simple, but to me just shows wisdom is, you know, a patient doesn't want to have to log into a portal, mm-hmm. right? And right. for some of us, yeah, it takes 10 seconds. That 10 seconds is too much. And you said, but they'll respond to a text, but they won't log into a portal and then have to type in things, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and we see in the world that makes or breaks companies, right? If you're a startup organization and one requires an additional element to log in and one doesn't, guess which one's going to win, right? So how do you make that? Um, now, there's certainly, there's regulatory issues with this and it's not as simple as, hey, let's just start texting everyone. Right. But that's being resolved at the moment. That's, that's getting easier and easier and easier. And I think just, it's that... Um, What's the simplest way to connect with someone on their terms in the platform that they're most comfortable using? And I think a major opportunity for this are our vulnerable populations. It's, right. uh, a lot of people don't have reliable Wi-Fi, things that we take for granted. 
but they may have a phone that you can text. Absolutely. And so that may be the only mechanism that they have to communicate with the healthcare system. And they're definitely not going to an office. They might, they're definitely not logging into a portal. And so, so I think that's a, a big opportunity for healthcare to really look at more simplified ways to engage with people. And that might include, that may be the phone, that might be video visit, that might be text, that might be email, you know, yeah. but the, that sort of omni-channel presence as, as a, a terminology that one would use, uh, I think text is underutilized. And we're seeing this in youth and adolescent mental health. We have a whole text-based platform for youth to build their resilience. And it is fascinating just using text as understanding where someone is, giving them modules and things to learn about, and also texting the support team around them. Just through text, you can really help a lot. Yeah. Uh, and you can do it in the middle of the night when yeah. the issues arise. Was so it, it's really exciting. Was it you, uh, and if, if it wasn't, I apologize, but was it you who said that people won't call in, like if they're having a mental health episode Correct. or a concern, but they'll text? Yes. Um, yeah. I don't have the specific data to reference, but we can, we can look it up. Is on, on suicide prevention, you know, crisis lines, is the, the probability to text is exponentially higher than someone picking up the phone. Yeah. So in that case, that's the difference between a life-saving moment and not. And so I, I, I think, again, it's really about what's the right platform and, and you know, emerging channels like TikTok, et cetera. Like what are, what are gonna be the right places to meet people where they are in the most consumer-friendly way? Yeah, good point. Now, at the same time, one thing you said in an article um, that I, I did some research ahead of time is you said that technology itself, or something along the lines of technology itself is not the solution or not the hero, right? Right. But it's a lever you can pull. So, folks, while Chris is talking about technology, you're not saying it's the solution, right? Or the well, it could be. It's a part solution. of the answer, right? But you yeah. don't start there. You start with empathy, and what always surprises me is. Um, I had an experience where we were working with providers and doing um, virtual interviews with patients that were not clinical based. They were talking to people about what healthcare meant to them. Yeah. And the providers that were with me were, were really excited about having these video interactions with patients. And I thought, well, that's weird. You see them all day, every day. And, and their communication to me was, yeah, but not like this. We right. don't get to spend time on these types of questions and really learning about their lives. And so. Empathy is the beginning, and then you start to look at, well, what are possible solutions to the opportunity or the problem? And then you get to, there's an interesting technology, text, AI, ML, like whatever the technology is going to be, can be a great solution to this open-ended problem. So I'll, I'll tell you one right now. One, one of the things we're well aware of is burnout in healthcare delivery. Yep. So a great strategic question is, how might we care for those that care so much their own health and well-being comes last? That is a great question. Now, you start to get to solutions, like how might we help with resiliency? How might we help with um, uh, workload and workflows? And then, then from there, eventually, you get to the technology that's going to provide the solution. But it starts with empathy, then the right question, then interesting creative concepts, healthcare starving for more creativity, yep, absolutely. and then inserting okay, there's a technology, there's an answer that comes down the road. Now, coming from Silicon Valley, that's not always the instinctual approach. Right. Speaking of technology, so, I mean, which obviously a lot of this conference is about technology. So, 
data collection, measuring things, uh, typically requires robust technology, not all the time. And one thing, I think it was some of the work you did is, the way you guys measured results was when someone crying. Mm -hmm. That's right, that's right. So two, <laughs> two, two stories there is, um, the first project we ever did was, how might we reimagine end of life care? So one, you start with the information, the data. The last year of many people's lives is, is one of the worst. And it, there's a lot of expense there and there's a lot of unnecessary treatment depending on who you ask. And so uh, we've opened up a challenge with IDEO and we said, how would we reimagine end of life care? Not asking, uh, we did ask, they included uh, physicians um, that were palliative care physicians or whatnot. But really, we just asked the world, how would you reimagine this? And so emerging stories from this were things like um, things that you assume like, well, uh, end of life is mostly about older people. That's not true. You know, all, age, all ages of people are affected by this. And we came across um, a woman named Yoko Sen. She was doing end-of-life sound requests. It turns out that's the last sense to go when you pass away, is the sense of hearing. And so now what would this mean clinically? So your, your physicians listening right now are like, where are they going with this? Well, what it means is she was running studies in hospital settings that were she was taking an end-of-life sound request and making sure the patient heard that sound when they passed away. So what would that mean? Well, going back to things like, do people fill out advanced care directives? No, far more people should than do. But if we added a question in that advanced care directive, we said, what's the last sound you'd like to hear at the end of your life? That's an engaging on-road to another series of things yes. that need to be done. Yes. So the tiers um, that you're referring to were on maternity. So we yep. talked to mothers and mothers said, I want to record this conversation, which is unusual that they want to record the conversation. And we said, why do you want to record this conversation? They said, because I haven't documented this. It's been crazy. I have this kid and we don't sleep. And, you know, ah, it's crazy around here. And so um, we started capturing through the partner the day that the baby was born. So we were capturing the story as told through the partner. And even single mothers usually showed up with someone. And we captured the story and we'd send it back to the mother 30 days after labor and delivery which was when they were at their low. And the measurement was, did it make people cry? Did it make the mother cry? And, it, and that meant we were emotionally resonating. It's not like we were trying to make people cry, but we knew that it resonated. That was how you knew the design worked. So it was a recordable card and people would open it and they would cry. <laughs> so we also had eight language requests in the first week. So that was an indicator of like, wow, how do we iterate the design now? Because we can't handle so many languages. So we actually made it a recorded voice card that the parent, would, the partner would use their own voice, record the card and send it back to mom 30 days later. So now again, you get to, what's the clinical reason to do that? Not obvious in the beginning, but then you add to the end of that card, here's the vaccination schedule for your baby, remember the appointments this day, et cetera. And so you can start to link this emotional connection to engagement, which leads to better outcomes. Yeah, and I know, uh yeah, I think I think you said something along the lines of battling emotion with logic drives you nuts. Yeah, something along those lines. Well, yeah, I think it's a common. Um, you see this a lot in healthcare, and I think part of it is a coping mechanism. Is 
something extremely emotional is going on for a patient and we can deliver the information, just, just give them more information, right? And, and that's the moment, and we know this because people, if you have them play back what just happened in a cancer diagnosis or whatnot, they remember very little because that's emotional processing and they're unable to handle that amount of information, rightly so, who could? And so design is, is really there to say, how do we make healthcare more emotionally relatable? So I'll give you an example. A physician will say, you know, you need to take these medications. We need a lifestyle overhaul. <laughs> you, know, you, you walk out feeling like, wow, I've got a lot to do. Now you might have a health coach that calls you that, that uh, same week and says, that's gonna be tough, huh? Like Friday nights are tough, huh? Now that's the relatability layer. So they're emotionally relating. And then the patient's saying, ah, this is gonna be really hard. In fact, Friday nights are usually the best night of the week and it's really fun. Our family gets together and this is what we eat and this is what we drink. And I, I, I really wanna succeed in my care plan, but how do I handle these tough situations? That's an emotional relatability layer on the coach side. Now the physician might not have time to do that, so everyone's playing a different role. But this, we can't, we can't fight um, logic with just more information. You've got to meet it at an emotional level. And that's, I think for pop health, that's, the, that's really the secret sauce, is relatability, connecting. And we call things, um, you know, things like tailwinds. How do I, if, you, if, you, if we're monitoring your sleep, and you're sleeping well, healthcare doesn't do anything. Yeah. If you're not sleeping well, if it waits till it's, you're really not sleeping well to intervene, but why from a pop health perspective, wouldn't we, re, wouldn't we reach out when things are going really well and say, congratulations, Gavin, you've slept well for a month. We just want to acknowledge that. Yeah. You know, how, would, how do we provide a little bit more of a balanced perspective? Yeah, so a couple things there. So, well, one thing there. The health coach. Yes. Rise of the health coach. That's yes. a quote from you from yesterday. Yes. Briefly, uh, we only have a couple minutes left, sure, Chris. Sure. So could briefly explain what you meant by rise of the health coach. That there, you know, this, the, the data is coming in in droves, right? So you have um, information coming longitudinally off of people's lives. That's uh, medication adherence, um, glucose monitoring, sleep monitoring, Weights, you know, it just keeps coming and it's going to keep coming, right? The, as we've seen here at this uh, event, lots and lots of more information coming into a healthcare system. And so, where did, where's that all information going to go? If you ask a physician, rightly so, they can't handle any more data just yeah. in droves, right? Yeah. At that level, they want curated, synthesized, this is what I need to know. Yep. And that's very appropriate for them. Then you get to the layer of what does the patient want to see? So that might be different, like the information in the loop. We see people come to their physician, for example, it's like, I want to show you all my Fitbit data. <laughs> and that's great. They, they need someone to celebrate those achievements with and whatnot. So we believe that the coach is going to play a really interesting role in all this. And I think what we're looking at is what are the different degrees of a healthcare team? So there's many on our side and there's many on the patient side. So the shift from one to one to many to many, and on the care team having a coach as we've seen in our primary care reimagined model called Terra, the coach plays a key role and they work in concert with the physician to really look at, here's the week, here's our patient population, who are you reaching out to, who am I reaching out to, you know, and looking at that layers of, of data information for 
whose job is it to intervene here? And then we get back to text and all the things that we've been talking about. Yep. So that's why I believe the rise of the health coach is going to be really, really interesting. Awesome, Chris. Well, we don't have much time with today's recording, but uh, folks, uh, we'll be, I'll be talking with Chris off the air. Chris and Sutter are doing so much, and this is just a snippet of what you guys are all doing. I know you have a team, uh, briefly, maybe in 60 seconds. Sure. Tell us about this innovation team of like 20 some odd people or a couple dozen. So yeah, it's, a, it's about 30 people okay. and um, you know, the whole, we've got a research group and a pop health group and a physician, you know, there's lots of layers in Sutter, but uh, this, if you think of it like a, a pyramid, you know, the innovation team is there for the edgiest elements. And then we're, whatever we might create can inform pop health strategy or whatnot. So say experimenting with lift rides is like, we're gonna dabble in that and see if there's a there there and then see if it can scale in the system. Um, looking at primary care reimagined and scaling it in the system. So the innovation team is kind of the edgiest element of that, but working in concert with pop health, with digital health, with our IS team, and then what's here is scalable to hopefully 3.5 uh, million people. It's worth saying just really quickly at the end here is health equity is something we haven't discussed today, but I think to be, um, COVID has uh, created more of a distributed health ecosystem. So we've got a health equity index, for example, that shows us these are the zip codes where your most vulnerable populations are not getting vaccinated. That's where you want to show up. So, yep. so that's a great example of, um, an ecosystem where the whole community is involved, right? And I think unlikely players like Nextdoor, we talked to Nextdoor during COVID and what Nextdoor is working on is how could the neighborhood help a vulnerable homebound patient by delivering groceries? Like, can they volunteer for that? So I love this blurring of the lines between what different entities do and how they've risen to the occasion, unfortunately, during a pandemic to demonstrate, here's what it looks like from a pop health perspective, where these unusual combinations of companies start to intersect. Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, man, no, and there's a lot more here that we want to uncover, but so as I shared folks, we might do a separate episode uh, pending uh, with Chris and, and Sutter in the future. Um, if folks want to learn more about what Sutter's up to on the innovation side, how do they, uh, are you active on LinkedIn or is there a website yes. where they can follow your work? LinkedIn, Twitter, um, we do have a website. It's a little bit dated, but uh, we're due to overhaul that. And uh, yeah, happy to, to hear from folks in the community and your audience. So yeah, that's the best way to, to reach us through Twitter or LinkedIn. Okay. Awesome. Well, Chris, really appreciate you being part of the show today. Uh, folks, what you didn't know behind the scenes, this happened pretty quickly. So, yeah, it did. Uh, it did. Uh, I appreciate you making this work, Chris. Absolutely. Thanks so much. You got it. All right, folks. Well, here we are on day three at the health conference in Boston, and we have Aloha McBride joining us today from Ernst & Young, or as folks may know as EY, commonly referred in our industry. And Aloha is the global health leader, uh, but you didn't always start as a global health leader at EY, and we'll get into that in a little bit later. Aloha, as you may know, we like to start our shows or with our guests, get to know them a little bit on the personal side. So uh, I know you probably get this a lot, but maybe let's start with your name. Tell us about that. Certainly. So my family uh, is a military family. My father was a doctor in the Air Force, and they were stationed in Honolulu before I was born. So as a souvenir, uh, I received this name. My middle name is a Gaelic name and my last name is obviously Irish. So uh, pretty unique, I suppose. Nice, well, we have the Irish connection here. And when you said Gaelic, you, you mind me uh, asking what it is? Uh, Kylan. 
Thailand. Okay, that's actually for my mom. She loves okay. uh, the Gaelic uh, language, and she's Irish and all that good stuff. Cool. So, uh, besides your name, tell us a fun fact about yourself. Maybe something outside of the healthcare world. Yeah, certainly. Well, I will never miss an opportunity to talk about my 501c3. I run a not-for-profit in the background. It's called the Malinois Rescue League, and it's dedicated to saving working dogs who find themselves in precarious situations. So a Belgian Malinois is a particular breed of dog, and it's like a German Shepherd, just smaller. They use them a lot in the military and in the police. Uh, we have focused in saving dogs from the Chinese meat trade and bringing them over to the U.S. and to Canada and to Europe to find new homes. Wow, very cool. A, a quick shout out, uh, website? Uh, MalinoisRescueLeague.org. All right, awesome. That's a really, really interesting. I'm a dog person and uh, I've heard similar stories with like other types of breeds mm -hmm. uh, with the meat trade as well. Yeah. Okay, so that's a little bit about Aloha. So let's jump into uh, EY, maybe give a high level view of Ernst & Young for our healthcare audience. Yeah, absolutely. So we are a full service professional services firm. A lot of people know us as an accounting firm, uh, so we do do that. We have an audit business. We also have a tax business, but I do not do people's individual taxes, so make that clear right off the bat. We also have a strategy and transactions practice, which is really focused on M&A and due diligence and market assessment strategies, as well as a consulting practice, which does both business consulting and technology consulting, but real, really oriented around sector. So within every sector, we go to market together, and define different unique solutions to really help our, our clients take advantage of those transformational opportunities that we see in the market, as well as really focus on their toughest, worst challenges that they may wake up with any day. Oh yeah, I was telling uh, Aloha off the air, I think my day job uh, has consulted with you guys, and as well I shared that my sister-in-law um, started her career as a young lady uh, with Ernst & Young, so very cool. And she did not work on the accounting side, she was a business analyst uh, for another sector. So. Here at the health conference, uh, you are helping to moderate a session later this afternoon with a focus on RPM. Can you share with the audience what that means sure. and what you guys will be talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to be talking about remote patient monitoring. And it's really interesting that you asked the question because some people bulk it in with telehealth and others understand that it's really a new way of caring for individuals. And what I mean by that specifically is, in a traditional health system, when we discharge somebody from a hospital, they would basically go home and, and they'd leave with a big, thick notebook of notes on what to do and probably a bag of medicine. And we would do follow-up in a few days or whatever and check in. Now, with remote patient monitoring, we can actually have somebody being monitored before they go in for a procedure or if they come in in an emergent situation, put that type of, of monitoring device on them in the emergency room so we can begin to track their vitals and understand what's going on. And then if they do you know, end up as an inpatient and are discharged, we can continuously remotely monitor how they're doing. And with some of the different device companies out there today, it's just amazing what you can monitor and what I think it does for families and patients is it gives a sense of security 
they know somebody's monitoring them in case something's going south. And yeah. I also absolutely for the clinicians, because I think everybody's worst nightmare is when you're discharging someone and it's stressful and you may not be listening very well or know what to do if something goes wrong, you know at least you have this monitoring capability. So we're seeing it across a lot of different disciplines. It's enabling home health from a hospital at home standpoint for chronic conditions, for you know, home ICU, for cancer patients that are receiving treatments in the home. So it's really a game changer in terms of both uh, security, I think for an individual, but it has a huge implication on cost. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, please. No, because, I mean, when you think about telemedicine, it's really, you're still using a human-to-human -human interface. It's still a labor cost, and we all know that labor is a huge expense. Yep. Well, this takes part of that away. So it really does change a, a, the, the cost differential in a meaningful way. And I think we'll see over time this type of capability being infused into a lot of care pathways. Okay, cool. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.